Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults. My name is James O'Connell and I'm Editorial Fellow at NEGM. On this episode of Curbside Consults, we're going to discuss a really interesting subject, or you could even say two subjects, that is tuberculosis elimination and quality of care. To do this, we are joined by Dr. Hannah Alsdorf, an infectious diseases epidemiologist and TB researcher from the University of Ottawa and formerly of the McGill International TB Centre. Welcome, Dr. Alsdorf, and thank you for joining us. Hi, James. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this um, podcast and series. I'm very excited to talk about TB elimination and quality of care with you today. Well, it's great to have you here with us. Uh, so to begin with, I think over being over one year into a global pandemic, most healthcare professionals will have grasped just how important preventing and controlling infectious diseases is and have seen by now how crucial accessible diagnostics and treatments and effective contact tracing are when controlling epidemics. Tuberculosis might be far from the minds of some listeners, but it is and has been a major cause of ill health globally. Could you give us an overview of the current state of TB morbidity and mortality and what trends are? Yes, definitely. Um, And thanks again for this opportunity to discuss the importance of tuberculosis. So in fact, tuberculosis has been the leading cause of death from an infectious disease for many years prior to COVID-19. According to the WHO's 2020 Global TB Report, Around 10 million people fell ill with tuberculosis in 2019, and approximately 1.3 million people died from TB, including over 200,000 deaths among people living with HIV. And although there are over a million deaths each year from tuberculosis, almost 90% of people who become sick with TB live in 30 high TB burden countries. So a key concern is that globally, the WHO also estimates that around 3 million people with tuberculosis go undiagnosed or unreported each year. And they're commonly referred to as the missing millions. So there's a critical gap in the need to better identify people with TB who need access to care and treatment. And also, uh, there are a lot of concerns about getting access to um, timely and accurate diagnostics, which is a key challenge for tuberculosis programs around the world. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I'd also like to just highlight that the COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately undone a number of gains in the TB world in recent years. There was modeling done by the Stop TB Partnership and the WHO that showed that COVID-19-related disruptions to TB services could lead to 6.3 million additional people developing tuberculosis and 1.4 million additional deaths by 2025. Early data has also shown excess mortality among people with TB and COVID-19. That's not really surprising um, that people are having these sort of comorbidities, but it is going to have some pretty devastating impacts, particularly on the people who have those uh, co-infections, and also, obviously, their families. So I think we all recognize the importance of addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, but I do think it's also important to note how much of a toll it's taken on TB services globally, and that there is really a justified concern about how this um, will impact morbidity and mortality in communities across the world going forward. Yes, uh, COVID-19 surely must have had a great toll on our TB services. But even before COVID, TB would have been the cause of death and infecting millions of people for many years. Could you tell us maybe, in your opinion, what is it about TB that has just made it such a difficult disease to eliminate? Yes, definitely. I think there's sort of four main um, challenges that are particular to TB, although maybe not just particular to TB, but I think are really why it's been hard to eliminate tuberculosis for such a long time. First and foremost is really that I think there has been a lack of political concern and financial support, particularly in recent years. There was sort of a resurgence of support and energy towards tuberculosis in the 90s when uh, the HIV 
an AIDS epidemic was coming to light. But I think we've really lost a lot of that political sense of relevance of tuberculosis because it is pretty typically not something that impacts people in sort of North America and high-income countries as much. So I think we've really lost sight of that importance, both politically and financially, as I said. And so I think that's one key concern about um, really getting to TB elimination. The second is that there really are pretty limited diagnostic tools, both for active tuberculosis and latent TB infection. And this is a recurring thing that theme that we will talk about throughout this podcast. But unfortunately, because there's a sort of been this lack of political and financial support, it also means there hasn't been very many new developments in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And that means we really have pretty limited capabilities for diagnosing TB in a really effective, efficient manner, and also in ways that are patient-centered. So like in terms of that, I mean, sort of point of care tests and such. And third, I think, is the lack of short manageable treatments. Um, Again, this is for both for active TB and then also for prevention of people with latent TB infection. And so we're seeing, again, I think some resurgence and some uh, increased efforts to try to really get to shorter treatment regimens, but we really don't have things like a fixed dose combination, something sort of parallel to an ARV or ARTs. And we really do need to be providing better treatments to patients that are both shorter in terms of just their quality of life and their sort of burden of treatment, but also in terms of just improving completion rates and really ensuring that people do get through their treatment and actually do get cured. And the fourth thing that I would say has made TB um, difficult to eliminate is sort of compiling all that together is that we've had quite a lack of high quality patient-centered care. Again, I think we may talk a little bit more about some of the details or the nuances of this later, but in particular, um, TB has really been, I think, focused on a kind of paternalistic modality for delivering care where we're directly observing patients. So it's directly observed therapy known as DOT which has some advantages in that patients are having close interaction with providers or healthcare workers. However, it really does take away the um, kind of ability of patients to feel um, empowered in their treatment regimens as well. And I think that's one component that I'm choosing to sort of focus in on, but I think it's also representative of a broader approach, which really hasn't been centered on meeting patients at where they're at and providing them with the supports and the things that they need to really have all the tools to get through everything from diagnosis through to treatment. Well, then what do you think needs to be done to eliminate TB? Is it just as simple as making the existing care more accessible? I wish it was, but simply put, no, I don't think that access to care is enough at all. One of my mentors from McGill, uh, Dr. Madhukar Pai, and one of our esteemed colleagues, Dr. Jennifer Furin, they recently published a piece in The Telegraph in March of 2021, which was entitled, We Went All Out to Tackle COVID-19, TB Needs the Same Approach. So I bring up this piece because they included a wonderful diagram that I'm going to try to explain um, to the listeners here called the Swiss cheese model for ending TB. And so this is a model that was actually adapted from one developed by Dr. Ian McKay for COVID-19. But it's really kind of a neat representation of all these different layers of Swiss cheese. And basically it shows that each layer of cheese has these little holes, right, which are the gaps uh, in a component of care. And in essence, it's saying how TB can kind of go through any one layer due to all the little holes or gaps in care. And what you really need to have is compounding layers or multiple slices, if you will, of cheese to actually stop or eliminate TB. And so what um, Drs. Pai and Firin went on to sort of highlight are the three key components. So these broader components that kind of make up this package of this Swiss cheese model that need to be addressed to end TB globally. And those are one, societal level factors. Second is personal level factors. And third is a person-centric healthcare system. 
So I want to walk the listeners through these kind of key components to get a better understanding of why I think TB elimination is so complex and challenging, and ultimately why it's about a lot more than simply access to care. So at the highest level, there's key social determinants of health that need to be addressed to eliminate TB globally. So that means things like tackling poverty, crowding, malnutrition, and other inequities that make people vulnerable to TB in the first place. So we have all these high-level societal factors that make it hard to eliminate TB, but also we need newer tools to prevent TB on a societal level, such as vaccines, right? And vaccines are sort of forefront in our mind right now. But to put things in context, the BCG vaccine, which is 100 years old this year, is the only vaccine we have for tuberculosis, but it's not effective at all in adults in low- and middle-income countries. So I think there's sort of this interplay of it's not just the um, social determinants of health, but it's also the things that we could do for prevention at a societal level. I also think at the societal level, we really need to have better community education around tuberculosis to reduce stigma and improve the understanding of the importance of both prevention and treatment for TB disease. In many places globally, tuberculosis patients are more stigmatized than for many other infectious diseases, including HIV. I do think one potentially positive side effect of COVID-19 is that we've sort of had this reawakening, if you will, um, as to the importance and the way that infectious diseases really can impact everyone in society. And I think that can help to have a positive shift in sort of the collective understanding that people with COVID-19, tuberculosis, or any other infectious disease are not different than anyone else. They just simply had the misfortune of being infected. But the second component that I mentioned earlier um, in the Swiss cheese model, if you will, is the personal level, right? So layers of this part of the model show how individuals and communities or household members really need to have proper education and understand the importance of early care-seeking behavior for TB symptoms, particularly if they know that they are exposed. But again, so this does require access to healthcare, so that is an important component, but it's not the only thing because it also requires these patients to trust the healthcare system. And then in turn, the healthcare system needs to properly screen notify and engage people who do come to seek care to make sure that they get properly tested, diagnosed, and put on the right treatment or preventive treatment regimen as needed. But key to this is that healthcare providers also need to engage people where they are and in ways that are useful and meaningful to them on an individual or personal level. So that's where we kind of start to dig into this importance of quality of care and patient-centered care, because it's not just about access, but it's about ensuring trust and a system that patients feel uh, supported by and really can actually get all the treatment that they need and ultimately help to sort of reach those TB elimination goals. And so finally, the third or last component that I had mentioned earlier is this person-centric healthcare system. And I've touched on that the last little bit I was talking about. But obviously, there are major gaps in early detection of TB disease, which needs to be made easier through things like point of care or molecular diagnostics. So I think that improving this quality of care is and also um, providing safer and shorter more effective treatment regimens for all forms of TB, latent TB infection for prevention, drug-resistant TB, pediatric TB, all of these things are also important components for that patient-centered care. And then the other point that I want to make about sort of this person-centric healthcare system is that we need to start to talk more explicitly about ways to support patients through their journey. So that means things like sick leave, cash incentives or cash supports, nutrition, um, but also social and mental health supports. And the other component is this management of comorbidities. Most TB patients will experience some other comorbidity, whether it's HIV, diabetes, malnutrition, other things. And so I think we need to really consider how important those are to really having it be a patient-centered system. 
So again, back to that telegraph piece, um, doctors Pai and Furin noted that these limited budgets we have have really forced TB programs in countries to prioritize one or two components of those layers in the Swiss cheese model that I talked about before. But we really need to advocate for more funds to increase the sort of breadth of TB programs globally so that we can address the various gaps at all these different individual layers. Because as I sort of going back to the main question, it's not really just a question of access to care, but really if we want to eliminate TB, we're going to have to address all these multiple layers, social, personal, and health system level in order to achieve the NTB strategy goal of TB elimination. Thanks, Anna. The Swiss cheese model is a really interesting way of conceptualizing all the complexities, I guess, that there are for TB patients in getting a timely diagnosis and effective treatment. You had mentioned that care needs to be more person-centered. Could you tell us perhaps a little bit more for TB, what does patient-centered care mean exactly? Yes, definitely. I do want to say, I think one of the things that's hard about patient-centered care is that it is very individualistic. And so I want to talk about a few components of it, but also recognizing that I think this is something that healthcare systems in general are kind of trying to learn about how to improve on. This is something we talk about sort of a lot about how to improve healthcare delivery. And I think we're getting into a lot of new and innovative ways. So I think we'll see kind of a lot of developments in this. So it's an area that's quite exciting for me. But also, I wanted to just mention that there was a recent editorial by some colleagues that was published as part of a series on a quality of care in uh, the Journal of Clinical Tuberculosis and Mycobacterial Diseases. And it's actually an ebook that might be of interest to some of your listeners. So I think we will have a link to that uh, PDF. But in this series on quality of care, one of the gaps that was identified was the need to better define what we mean by quality of TB care, right? So that we can actually ensure that it's properly measured. And so in that, what we started to deconstruct was the fact that we need to start to have patient perspectives be much more central to how we define quality. And so um, I think that's sort of getting into the heart of it is that we need to make sure that we're asking them what their needs are so that their expectations can be met and that we're not simply focusing on a definition of quality that's aligned sort of with the priorities of the scientific or the medical community. And as I mentioned sort of initially to this question was that we have to recognize that every individual patient is going to be different. They're going to have different priorities, and they're also going to have a lot of different needs depending on their unique set of life circumstances, comorbidities, and again, sort of cultural and local experiences. So it's not like a simple formula that we can apply. That said, I do think we have a basic understanding of what's meant by quality. And in essence, quality is that when a patient goes to a healthcare provider, he, she, or they can receive the correct diagnosis and treatment, including referrals, and have a minimum level of guaranteed safety. So I think when we talk about patient-centered care, we know that we want it to be sensitive and responsive to the educational, emotional, and material needs of the people who are actually impacted by TB disease. And again, going back to the point I made earlier, because TB has so many accompanying social determinants of health, it really is critical to try to address the whole person, right? So that means providing much better patient support and really including all those components that we discussed earlier. I also wanted to just make a mention of this uh, pretty exciting thing that the Lancet Commission did. So the, the Lancet Global Health did. They had actually a commission on high quality health systems in 2018, and they published quite a large but really nice um, series on what it means to improve the quality of health uh, systems globally. And they actually presented data that showed that fewer than 25% of people in low and middle income countries believe that their health system works well. And this is data from before the pandemic. 
So I think it highlights to me that we really need to start to focus on this patient user experience, particularly in low and middle income countries. And we need to stop viewing patient satisfaction of a component of care that's really only relevant to citizens of wealthy nations. If you take the North American context where I am, anytime you go to a healthcare provider, you get surveys about the experience and such, but we don't do the same thing for people in low and middle income countries. And I think if people in these areas in low and middle income countries and globally don't have confidence in the quality of care or services that's being provided to them, well, it's not surprising that they're not going to engage well with that system and then ultimately have negative health outcomes, right? So that's why we really need to start to shift our thinking as um, healthcare providers and health systems to really try to figure out what it is that all patients are needing to bolster their satisfaction and also their confidence and trust in both the healthcare providers and the services. And that's relevant to tuberculosis or HIV or maternal child health. It's something that can help to improve the system throughout. It doesn't have to just be focused on, I think, TB services. So if healthcare services want to be of high quality, and I guess that means they should be trying to understand and account for what the patient's perspective of quality is and try to deliver that. Moving on, I had read about the concept of the cascade of care, and I know some of your own research has focused on that. Could you explain that a bit more? And when applied to TB disease epidemiology, what has it shown us? Yes, definitely. I think the cascade of care is actually a concept that originally started in the HIV community, but I think it's a really great concept that helps give us a framework to sort of understand the patient journey. So essentially, the cascade of care looks at all the different steps along a patient journey where there may be some Uh, interaction with the healthcare system, and then ultimately potentially a loss to follow up. So for tuberculosis in particular, it's the different steps between being identified um, as potentially a contact of someone with active disease, where they're supposed to be screened, then they're supposed to have some sort of test for diagnostic, whether that's for active TB or latent TB. And then they sort of come back for clinical evaluation, some sort of chest x-ray, some sort of diagnosis. And then ultimately, they're supposed to have interactions with a healthcare provider education to determine whether they want to start uh, treatment and then ultimately through to completion. So it's kind of all these different steps. And quite frankly, this is some concept that I think is being applied to a lot of other diseases uh, now. And I think it's really useful to sort of understand how the patient goes through the system and the points and interactions um, that they might have with providers. So we can better understand how to sort of keep them as patients and sort of retain them as it were, and then also make sure that they're getting the care they need to come back and continue through the full um, process of their journey. But what happened was um, in 2016, we actually published a systematic review and meta-analysis in the Lancet Infectious Diseases, where we were specifically looking at that latent tuberculosis uh, infection cascade of care. And I think what's interesting to highlight is that from our systematic review, that we had about 58 studies, I believe it was, and there were just under 750,000 participants in the data. And what we found was that basically less than 20% of people who were initially identified to be screened actually completed treatment. But what we found remarkable was that at all these other time points along their journey, they were lost to care. So they basically stopped engaging with the health system for one reason or another. And I think this cascade of care really highlights that there's these dramatic losses at various steps. So although the overall finding was that fewer than 20% of people who uh, could have been put on treatment completed, we also found that 30% of people who should have been screened or tested for TB initially were not. So that means that almost 30% of people who didn't even start that treatment 
And when you start to look at the cascade, you can see that if you target all your interventions to focus on treatment completion and really spending all your energy and money to try to get people to complete treatment who've started, you've actually missed a huge proportion of the people who actually need to be engaged with the health system. And so I think this cascade of care is this really cool tool that allows you to um, actually look at what's happening in the local context and actually do ongoing monitoring and evaluation. You can identify and quantify the points in the patient journey where there are these key gaps in your specific setting, and then target interventions that can engage patients and um, hopefully keep them retained in care so that they actually make it all the way through the cascade of care. I also do think that these cascade of care models are really helpful because particularly for TB programs, it really gives program managers the ability to see progress. So what happens is you can kind of do these cascade of care analyses before you do an intervention and you kind of see where you're at at baseline. And then if you continue to do them at different time points, then you see the progress, which can really motivate healthcare workers and clinicians. And again, it allows you this this process to sort of iteratively look at where you need to make improvements and then hopefully really see that in the health outcomes and ultimately patient treatment completion rates. And the goal, obviously, in all of this is that you're sort of really impacting the epidemiology of TB in your local setting. So patients with TB get lost all along the care cascade from screening to diagnosis treatments. What you mentioned there in particular was at the point of diagnosis or before diagnosis is where largest proportion get lost. How can this gap in the cascade of TB care be overcome? I think that that is actually one of the most challenging aspects of uh, TB care. So I think to sort of set the stage a little bit for your listeners who may not be as familiar, I mean, tuberculosis symptoms are relatively nonspecific. And although obviously I'm focused on TB, I do recognize that it is still rare compared to other common respiratory ailments. I also think we have to be honest about the fact that with COVID-19, patients are often having similar overlapping symptoms. So it may be even more confusing for providers. But in some countries, in India, for example, providers often report doing this diagnosis by treatment, which means that they use antibiotics before testing, which then sort of exacerbates the issue and leads to drug resistance and has a negative impact on the quality of life for patients, but also increases the number of times a person needs to interact with the healthcare system because they effectively didn't actually get a diagnosis initially, right? But I think in terms of sort of the broader question of how we deal with the gap in diagnosis, I think there are certain groups that are at a much higher risk for being missed for proper diagnosis, which we know. So people who are living with HIV or AIDS, uh, people who are suppressed or immunocompromised for any other reasons, and children. And that is partially due to the imperfect sensitivity of diagnostic tests, um, particularly when we talk about non-sputum samples. But the other challenge for diagnosis is that we do have some newer uh, PCR-based WHO-approved diagnostic tests. One in particular is known as gene expert or expert. And this is a great new test that's really reduced the time from um, diagnosis, like to giving results to patients. But the problem is that they're not typically available at the local health facility level in high TB burden countries. So instead, many local health facility levels will be using sputum microscopy in low and middle income countries, which has relatively poor sensitivity, but it is the main diagnostic method. And so if somebody has, for example, smear negative TB, then they have to go back to the healthcare facility multiple times again, for numerous steps in the diagnostic algorithm, which includes wait times between each visit and also increases, obviously, the likelihood of patients being lost or not coming back. So I'm sort of highlighting two examples, but essentially, whether it's the diagnosis by treatment or having sputum microscopy and having challenges with sort of 
the number of visits that are needed for diagnosis, I think we really have to actually address the fact that we need a better way of getting patients um, diagnosed and results in a timely and effective manner, basically. So I think these rapid tests being um, available at a more decentralized level would really improve this step because it gives patients what they need, which is essentially information in a faster, easier way. And it doesn't require them to kind of constantly take time out of their work and their days to come back for repeated uh, visits just simply to get a proper diagnosis. And so if increasing numbers of patients can actually get a diagnosis. Um, After that, how should the quality of care be improved to ensure that they complete their treatments and are cured of TB? I think that this is where we get to the part of patient retention, because regardless, TB patients will have multiple visits um, with healthcare providers. And so I think that we really need to think about how we deliver healthcare. And I will say that this is actually one area that I'm super excited about, because I'm trying to see the positives of COVID-19, as we all are. And one of them, I think, that is really applicable to TB has been the rapid uptake of telehealth and uh, digital solutions for healthcare delivery. So this is where I think we get these patients say they have the good diagnosis or try to improve that step. When we want to really keep them in care and we want the quality to improve, I think that digital solutions are going to be kind of one of the best ways that we can really improve how we're providing care. So as I sort of mentioned uh, a minute ago, TB care typically involves directly observed uh, therapy or DOT. There has been some shifts to self-administered therapy or known as SAT, but that's particularly in high-income countries. But it hasn't really been the standard of care for people to self-administer in most low- and middle-income countries. And so I think that what's exciting about the uptake of digital or uh, telehealth solutions with COVID-19 is that we can actually apply this to tuberculosis. So TB programs can use telehealth or virtual care, if that's something that patients prefer. And that has the potential to really improve the quality of care from the patient perspective. So to shift again to the patient-centered care, I think it can provide means for patients to have that individualized care, but also so that it's done in a way that is amenable to their lifestyle and really doesn't require them to constantly be going to healthcare facility to get treatment or sort of follow-ups and visits. And so I think that's one of the really exciting things to me with COVID-19 and the potential for shifting sort of the care delivery system. Also wanted to sort of go back to that Lancet Global Health Commission on High Quality Health Systems because they also showed data that um, among patients from low and middle-income countries, almost a third noted that they had experienced some form of disrespectful care, short consultations, poor communication, or long wait times. So I think that although the telehealth is important, We also need to start to really address the fact that when patients are going to health facilities, they are experiencing what they consider to be really poor care and often disrespectful care. So the problem with this is that that doesn't mean that there's going to be like a one-size-fits-all approach that will sort of be an intervention that can work to just improve quality of care. Instead, we're going to have to modify and tailor the care delivery for each individual patient, but also within the local context to make something that's relevant to those people and also the providers. But here's where I think things like quality improvement or QI can also help us. There are tools such as the QI principle of PDSA, which is Plan, Do, Study, Act. And I do think that now that we're sort of in this modality of sort of looking at how we can ramp up quality of care and patient-centric care, we can use tools that we already have from QI to start to slowly implement different things, different interventions at the local health system level, then actually study it to see what it does in the local context, and then improve on how we're delivering patient care based on, again, patient feedback and outcomes. 
And so I think those are ways where we can actually look at tools that we have to try to improve the way that we're delivering quality of care. The last point I'll make is just that in terms of quality, it also is the broader focus now on universal health coverage, I think is important. And that kind of gets to the point of TB as being considered part of a broader package of care. We need to start to see patients as the full person and providing comprehensive care. And as I mentioned earlier, whether that's social or mental health support or dealing with other comorbidities, we have to really address their needs in a holistic manner and not just only focus on this simple TB diagnosis and treatment, but rather as all of their needs are considered to really get them to understand that as the healthcare system is there as a support and to provide the treatment and the care that they need. So far, you've given us a really good overview of the role of high-quality care in eliminating TB globally. I wanted to ask you a few questions about latent TB infection, because we know that much TB disease globally is related to reactivation of latent disease. We know latent TB infection is treatable, but who should be treated and where in the cascade of care are these patients lost? This is obviously something that's very uh, important to me, and much of what my doctoral research was focused on this, in fact. And so I think it's critical. There's a potentially 2 billion people who are latently infected in the world today. But I think, again, in order to sort of um, focus on the on sort of avoiding reactivation, there are um, some specific groups that we really need to focus on. So in particular, we need to prioritize um, treatment to really the most high-risk groups. So that's particularly people living with HIV or AIDS, as well as people who are in close contact. So people living in households with somebody who has active TB disease and children. Um, Obviously, primarily in high TB burden countries, we really want to focus on better um, active case finding and screening of people who are spending a lot of time with somebody who has active TB disease. But also we do need to think about really making sure that healthcare workers are protected, particularly who are providing a lot of care in TB or HIV clinics because they are at a high risk of um, reactivation as well. And so I do think that as I mentioned earlier, I'm sort of going back to the point that I made before, but that meta-analysis and systematic review we published in Lancet ID in 2016 really did highlight that while, yes, fewer than 20% of eligible people completed treatment, we lost most people at the initial stage of screening. And I think that that is a really important gap that has been identified not just in that meta-analysis and systematic review, but in other publications, because really what we know is that screening and getting people to get a TB test initially is quite hard. And so that's where we need to start to have community-driven solutions, but also screening in communities that are at higher risk. There are certain communities that can be targeted for various reasons. And when we know that there's a higher TB prevalence in, in certain communities, that's where we really need to be focusing our efforts to make sure that we're getting people access to this, the initial testing to then provide them the right treatment. The other thing I wanted to note is that I think There really are these exciting new shifts in TB preventive treatment, so TPT, but we really need to make sure that we're also offering that to patients who really need it. And so we really need to make sure that we're getting it to the people that are most high risk to ensure that we're preventing as much TB disease or reactivation as possible. I will just highlight as well that there was a historical review of studies that Dr. Jonathan Golub and some colleagues published in the American Journal of Epidemiology that showed that TPT does have a marked reduction in active TB, as well as reducing the prevalence of latent TB. So I think that we want to really try to focus all of our efforts on really halting progression. And I do think that the the key in many countries is that there's been sort of this sort of general TB program 
process of saying, yes, we're going to do preventive therapy, but it's not been a high priority because it's very hard to actually roll out active TB treatment. The problem is that we really can get to uh, more people if we start to do screening in communities that we know where there's a lot of high risk community members. And that way we can really start to target the preventive treatment that we're offering to people in the most high risk groups. Thanks, Anna. I think you touched on an interesting point there. Um, Perhaps in recent decades, there was maybe a resistance to trying to roll out preventive TB treatments in kind of high incidence countries, but that seems to be shifting now, that opinion that preventive treatment is is just as important in high TB incidence countries as the low TB incidence countries. What interventions do you think are needed to scale up the number of patients screened and the number treated for latent TB then? I think that is the exciting part. We are shifting to realize how important prevention is and the TPT. And I think you did a nice job of sort of summarizing what I was trying to say, which is that there has been a revival in the sense of, in the TB community in particular, of the importance of prevention. And so I think that there's a couple of things that we can talk about, but I will just highlight another publication that I think might, again, be interesting to your listeners is that, so Dr. Greg Fox, myself, and some other colleagues published this state-of-the-art series on active case finding in contacts of people with TB in the International Journal for TB and Lung Disease earlier this year in January. And this was a review that sort of was looking at the importance of active case finding and contact investigation. And what we noted was that really these contact investigations are needed to prioritize the contacts who have had sort of the longest duration and the closest proximity with people who have had active TB disease. And again, I think COVID-19 has shown globally the importance of understanding the importance of contact tracing because we've suddenly had to realize how it's important for COVID-19, and that's obviously applicable to TB. And so I think that is an advantage to TB programs globally because I do think we can sort of have these integrated sort of comprehensive screening approaches that really do look at contact tracing in high-risk groups, and that's what we really do need for TB patients, particularly, again, as I mentioned earlier, like using digital apps for contact tracing to sort of be leveraged for tuberculosis. But in terms of treatment, I think, again, we really need to start to focus on patient-centered approaches. And so this is something that really needs to be centered on power sharing with patients so that patients know that they have the decision-making power and self-determination. Again, I said earlier, but I do think that DOT is a very paternalistic approach to care delivery. And While I'm not encouraging that we completely disband DOT, I don't think that's reasonable or feasible or even appropriate, but I do think we need to start to see that care, that process of delivering therapy and treatment as important. And so with TPT, especially with preventive treatment, we need to have that power sharing also because when you get to the basics, somebody who's diagnosed or who has a latent TB infection, they don't necessarily feel sick. And for any of us, right, prevention is always a hard thing because While you can understand theoretically the importance of it, nobody wants to be taking medications when they feel healthy. And so that's where I think we need to start to have more conversations, more honest and engaged conversations with patients and offer them shorter regimens. So I think that ultimately that the more we screen patients, the more we identify them, then we also have to take it to the next step, which is discussing the reality of treatment with them. And fortunately, one of the advances that we've seen recently is that there are better TB preventive treatments that are shorter. So we have three months of rifapentine and INH, so 3-HP. There's also 4-RIF. There are different treatment regimens that are no longer the sort of standard six to nine months of um, preventive treatment that I think are of interest to patients and also can improve their quality of treatment and also diminish the likelihood of adverse side effects. So I think we need to have more counseling and support packages 
because if we are going to target these high-risk populations for uh, TB screening, which we should, we also have to recognize that they are vulnerable to many other social determinants of health, which again goes back to the points that I've made earlier. So I do think that really for scale up, unfortunately, there's not like some prescriptive intervention that I say, apply this intervention and it's all going to work and you're going to get everybody screened. But I do think, again, targeting people living with HIV, immunosuppressed, close contacts, and also children, that's, those are the groups that we really need to be prioritizing to ensure that we're getting the most high-risk groups screened and put on preventive treatment. But in order to get them successfully through preventive treatment, we have to be honest with them about what it is, and we need to talk to them about what they desire and how they want that preventive treatment delivered in a way that is empowering and appropriate for their lives and their context and their individual considerations and circumstances. And to finish with, World Health Organization have defined TB elimination as less than one case of TB per million of population per year. This sounds like an almost unattainable target for some countries with the highest burden of TB. And even for high-income, low-TB incidence countries like the US and Canada, this is quite challenging also. Are there any major interventions I think some of which you've mentioned on the horizons that could really move us towards TB elimination sooner. This is definitely a very ambitious target set by the WHO. And I want to start this off in kind of an unconventional way by juxtaposing the COVID-19 situation with that of TB. So in one year, COVID-19 received 10 billion, with a B, US dollars in investments. Tuberculosis averages 100 million per year for all investments, which includes diagnostics and treatment. COVID-19 currently has 92 vaccines in trial with 28 in final stages. As I mentioned earlier, tuberculosis has one vaccine, the BCG, which is 100 years old this year, and there are no new vaccines in phase three trials for TB. BCG has about a 0% efficacy in adults in low and middle income countries, while there are eight approved vaccines for COVID-19 with a 70 to 95% efficacy. So it's not just simply that we need a new intervention or vaccine. I'm just highlighting the sort of vaccine state because I think it's quite dramatic. But we really need to have a larger shift societally to recognize that TB is still a problem that actually faces millions of people globally and really does need and deserve financial resources to get the appropriate and necessary improvements in both vaccine coverage, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. So I just sort of have to set the stage because I do think we really are at a point where TB is really significantly underfunded. And so these WHO targets are not going to be achievable unless we get additional resources to fill those gaps. But that said, I want to leave on a positive note because I do think there are some super exciting developments on the horizon for TB. So there are four main interventions that I think are sort of four main areas that I'll talk about in terms of TB elimination developments, but also the shift in healthcare delivery that I just want to reemphasize. I do think, again, this virtual care revolution is awesome. And I think that what COVID-19 has done to bring healthcare delivery into people's homes can be something that is applied to TB and really can drastically shift and improve the patient experience for TB patients globally, as well as their families and their support networks and communities, and actually can help to really push us towards elimination by really bringing it to people's homes and in a manner that's safe and appropriate and private even for them, if that's what they choose. And so the interventions that I want to talk about are the following. So one is the digital applications two is artificial intelligence, and three is novel diagnostics and treatment regimens. So I'm sort of lumping diagnostics and treatment regimens together. But at any rate, the digital apps, we were just talking about telehealth and everything. But I do think in COVID-19, we've seen a lot of digital apps for contact tracing. And actually, I think that is something that's 
really exciting for tuberculosis. These are ways that we could actually much more efficiently and in a cost-effective manner start to do contact tracing on larger scales or in targeted communities in for TB patients and their family members. Also, I think the digital apps are great because it's a way that we can provide TB education as well as direct patient-provider interactions and communications that will improve the quality of care for patients globally. And I think because digital apps can be targeted to the most appropriate or locally used platforms, it's exciting because there's a lot of potential for innovation and really advancements in that area. The other thing that I wanted to note as an intervention is AI. So artificial intelligence is currently being used for uh, TB screening and triage, particularly for reading chest x-rays. So there's things like CAD for TB and some other tools that are being used. Unfortunately, we still need a lot more um, evidence on the use of CAD for TB. And we also need a lot more readings and training sets and such of x-rays. But I think it is really a potential area of a lot of expansion to help with faster detection and diagnosis of TB. But I also think AI can be used in other ways that we're just sort of starting to consider now, right? Whether it's risk factor identification or projection of cases, as well as potentially identifying new drug or vaccine candidates. So I do think AI is something that's been applied to healthcare in other areas, and I think really has promise for helping us move towards TB elimination eventually as well. So the last thing that I'll talk about is just the novel diagnostics and treatment regimens. I mentioned Gene Expert earlier, but I do think it's an exciting moment because that is a great tool. And I think it's only getting improvements and we're getting a lot of data and the potential to decentralize it. The cost has come down. There's really great ways to really implement and integrate it into health systems. The other exciting thing is there's actually um, currently studies looking at the integrated use of Gene Expert for testing both for COVID-19 and TB. So it's a tool that can be used for other testing, not just TB, which would be really beneficial to health systems globally. So that's one thing with the diagnostics. And then um, another exciting prospect for diagnostics is the use of other things like uh, urine-based LAM. So urine is obviously much easier to collect and doesn't have the same infection control risks as sputum. So urine LAM is one that's currently being used to assist in diagnosis of TB and HIV-positive adults particularly those with low CD4 counts, but it's not currently recommended by the WHO to diagnose TB. But I think LAM is an example of the new diagnostics and approaches that are on the horizon, ways to do point-of-care testing where we still need to gather a lot of evidence and there's still a lot of improvements that need to be made on these tests, but I think really they do offer a great potential for helping us to get to TB elimination and really address that gap of diagnosis that we've talked about earlier. And then the last thing that I'll talk about is just the treatment regimen. So in the last decade, we saw two new treatment regimens for active TB, so delaminid and bedaquiline, as well as the um, advancements in shorter preventive treatment regimens that we talked about earlier. So while, again, there's still more evidence needed for these regimens, there is the potential to, again, change the patient experience, particularly by reducing the amount of time they need to be on treatment and the negative side effects that they experience. The other exciting advancement is that there have been child-friendly formulations for pediatric TB, which is exciting because that greatly changes the um, treatment process and experience for children who are affected by TB. Now, that said, I do think we still need to push for many more advances like fixed-dose combinations or FDCs and things um, to improve the treatment even better for people so that it's shorter regimens and also, again, to make more child-friendly regimens and formulations, but I do think we've seen some great improvements and optimistic that we will continue to see more in the coming years. So I would just say 
TB programs continue to try to implement interventions to engage patients and provide peer support in novel and practical ways. And so I think that that is something that is on the horizon. And I do, again, think that COVID-19 has been hard for TB programs because it's been an additional strain, especially a lot of clinicians have been shifted, their tasks have been shifted to COVID-19 work. But I am really optimistic that a lot of the lessons learned from COVID-19 will be extremely applicable and directly relatable to the TB program uh, experience and can ultimately help us to improve the ways that we're engaging patients, the ways that we're providing care, and ultimately giving us more tools and opportunities to really improve the quality of the care that we're providing to patients. So that said, I think there's also, again, I just sort of want to end on the point that I do think there's going to be a lot of energy in the TB community, but we are going to need a lot of financial and political support at all levels if we actually want to get to that WHO TB elimination goal, which I think is ambitious, but I believe it is achievable. And we certainly just need to get the energy and the support and the health system to provide the comprehensive care that's really needed for TB patients globally. Thanks, Hannah. I think you've given us a really good overview of the current global TB situation and the importance of patient-centered, high-quality TB care. And as much as it's been a focus of, I guess, TB research and TB policymaking in recent years, it'll really need to be much more so in in the coming years if TB is to be eliminated. Uh, So thanks very much for joining us, Anna. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's really been a pleasure. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I would like to thank Dr. Hannah Alsdorf once more for joining us today in our discussion about the need for high quality TB care. Our production team here at NEGM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasas, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEGM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at negm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEGM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by the NEGM.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is James O'Connell signing off.